chapter 2. Verse 25 to 35. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Amen. <coughs> Let's just pray for a moment, asking God's help. Father, we thank you for this book of truth, which we are free to read and study. We look to the Holy Spirit now to speak to our hearts through this passage, praying that he might illumine our minds and change our lives so that we become more like Christ. So change us that the world might know whose we are and whom we serve. For his name's sake we ask it. Amen. This passage takes me back to my childhood when uh, I was a cherubic little choir boy, complete with cassock and surplice in my local Anglican church, and we used to say the Nunc Dimittis every week, Simeon's song. Simeon was a man of faith, and he appears on the scene when the Lord is just a few weeks old and then he fades away from the picture and we hear no more about him. He may have been an old man, we, we sort of have the impression he is, um, but that's an assumption that the commentators make based on his cheerful readiness to die. They think he was an old man, but you know age alone doesn't make you ready to die. One can be old and unready to die. We're not sure of Simeon's age. It's not important. What is important is that he trusted the predictions concerning Israel's restoration. He had faith in God 
and he had faith in God's book. That's what marks him out as special. Simeon's whole life and future stood foursquare on the promises recorded in Scripture. There was no verbal revelation given for a 400-year period between the Old and New Testaments. The prophetic voice had fallen silent after Malachi, but the written Old Testament was available in Hebrew. And from the 3rd century BC, the Old Testament was available in, available in Greek, uh, the Septuagint version. And the written Bible was enough for anyone who was seeking God. There was no need to go beyond what was written. And Simeon trusted in the Word of God. Then we can say other things as we go down the passage. Verse 25, he was led by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 27, he was obedient to the will of God. He was led by the Spirit into the temple and he followed. Verse 27 again, he was privileged to see the salvation of God, the child Jesus. And then further, he was granted a personal revelation from God. Verse 26, he would not die before the Messiah appeared. He would see him with his own eyes. Then he could depart. And may I just interject there. You are not ready to depart unless and until you have seen Jesus Christ. Not with the natural eye, of course, I'm not referring to that, but with spiritual vision. No one has seen Christ with these eyes since his ascension. You might meet people who claim they have, but the scripture says that wouldn't be true. Uh, for 2,000 years since he ascended, no man has seen him. But we must see him with the eyes of faith. One day, every eye on earth shall see him when he returns again in person. But now, uh, it's different. 1 Peter 1 verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And believing in him, you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. It's essential to see and believe in Christ before we die. Verse 29, uh, Lord, let us now thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. The emphasis is on the word now. Now that I have seen Christ, you can dismiss me, Lord, in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. I'm ready to depart. Um, that word depart has different meanings, interesting meanings. There are four at least I came across. Uh, to depart, to release a prisoner. Secondly, to untie a ship that's moored to the shore so that it can set sail. And then thirdly, to dismantle a tent and move on to another place. And then 
to remove the yoke from an ox, uh, the beast of burden, and so set it free. Interesting uses of the word depart. So for a Christian right with God, death is a departure, it's a release, it's a move, it's a burden lifted, it's a yoke untied, it's a welcome experience, it's a peaceful embarkation. Simeon no longer feared death because of his experience. Faith in Christ Jesus removes the universal fear that produces bondage in the mind and heart of people. That fear is there. You might be saying, well, I'm not afraid to die. Well, I don't believe you. The Bible says that all men, through all their lives, are subject to this fear. So no matter how much you deny it, there's a fear of death. For Simeon, the world had long lost its charm, the grave had lost its terrors, and heaven beckoned. And we see in him not only a willingness to depart, but a longing to leave the world. In days of spiritual darkness, Simeon encourages us uh, by proving that faith, though rare at that time, had not disappeared from the earth. But the Savior can deal with the fear of death. Simeon proves that. And at this time, God was not without witnesses. He'd reserved a faithful remnant. Amid widespread apostasy in Israel, there was found, verse 25, this righteous and devout man who was neither a priest nor a rabbi, but the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was a mere rank and file Jew. He was a godly layman, like Mary's husband Joseph was just a humble carpenter in Nazareth. They were not clerics or Levites. Mary, undistinguished apart from her faith, her, her godliness, her grace, her purity. There are a lot of young people here this evening, maybe a word for them. Youth is beset by many problems. I want you to notice, young people, that Mary is a good, if not the best argument, for the value of female chastity. And Joseph to the boys, a good example of male chastity. Mary and Joseph recognized that betrothal was not marriage. <clears throat> Had Mary been promiscuous, she would have been ruled out of consideration by God to fill a vital role. You see, God looked for a virgin. Mary qualified. Obedience to God's will results in moral purity. Simeon was earnest in his personal commitment to the Lord and this resulted in him being righteous before men and devout towards God, living a conscientious, disciplined, spiritual life. In Micah's words in 
chapter 6 and verse 8 of Micah, he behaved justly, he loved kindness, and he walked humbly with his God. Now, further among God's faithful remnant, there was Anna. We didn't read about her, but if we'd gone on a verse or two, we would have done. Anna was a prophetess. And then we would go, we'd also read earlier um, about Elizabeth, wife of the godly Zechariah, who was a priest. Men and women, witnesses to whom the scriptures were vital. Their lives had been guided by scripture. And though the voice of the verbally inspired prophet was silent at this time, there were still those who were found faithful to an ever-present God and faithful to the instructions of his written word. And they were willing to stand alone, if necessary, in loyalty to him. Verse 37, Anna, a widow about 84, never left the temple, worshipping, fasting, praying night and day. Coming to Mary and Joseph at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child Jesus to all. She spoke about the child Jesus to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem, to all Jewish people who trusted the Scriptures and looked forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna testified evangelistically about Jesus. She's a great example. So verse 27 again. Simeon was led by the Spirit of God to Christ. The Holy Spirit draws and leads us to Christ and reveals him to us, as he did for Simeon. We're all lost and we're all blind until God's Spirit guides us to Christ and opens the eyes of our understanding. As for Gentiles in verse 32, uh, they were in darkness, the darkness of ignorance and uh, superstition, worshipping the works of their own hands, indeed worshipping anything but the one true God. Now came the promise through Simeon of divine revelation to enlightened, benighted Gentiles. Jesus, the light of the Gentiles, the light of the world, was also the glory of Israel, verse 32. The presence of God in the Old Testament, most dramatically, was the Shekinah in the tabernacle. There was this glow. And that's the glory of God. And the New Testament says that Jesus is the glory of God. He's the presence of God in the world. He is Emmanuel, God among us. The Shekinah, the glory of the Lord. So he's the light of the world to the Gentiles. He's the glory of his people Israel. Now I'm so glad that the Gentiles uh, were included. Aren't you? I'm a Gentile, you see. Um, that's why I say that. I might look like a Jew, but I'm a Gentile. <laughs> Luke was the only Gentile gospel writer. And... Christ's compassion for a world of all kinds of people was among Luke's major themes. He had a real, uh, shall we say, a human approach to things. And Simeon, as a Jew, actively looked, waited for, 
the consolation of Israel, which is a term used of the coming Messiah. Verse 25. He loved his nation, he loved his people, but needed, Israel needed consolation. They needed comfort in their distress. Conditions were bad for the Jews politically and spiritually at this time. They were under the thumb of Rome. Simeon cared about that. Messiah would be consolation for a suffering people. And Simeon looked to the day when Israel's oppression and chastisement would be over. God would comfort his people and speak tenderly to them, as Isaiah promised. And that was a joyful bit of news for Simeon. Simeon's concern was somewhat unusual in that it was broader than his people Israel. He foresaw the time when the light of God's salvation would spread to the whole earth, the, the very ends of the earth. That promise and that prospect was a source of joy to him. Many other Jews were parochial in their outlook. Uh, you all know about Jonah. In the Old Testament, Jonah was angry when God showed a Gentile nation such mercy and grace. That's why he ran away. He didn't want to go to preach repentance to the Assyrians. Uh, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Um, and when God did show mercy and grace to the capital city, and all the people in the city repented, Jonah was upset. <coughs> I knew you'd be merciful to them. So we felt. God forgave the inhabitants of Nineveh and removed his threatened judgment. Simeon actually rejoiced in the wideness of God's mercy. And uh, there's a miracle here too in this passage. Simeon was led by the Spirit into the temple at just the right time. When Joseph and Mary were there to dedicate their firstborn, verse 27, there was Simeon with Christ in the temple by the providence of God. The greatest moment of his earthly life, verse 28, was when he took up into his, his arms God's salvation born into the world. I find this a mind-blowing concept, mind-blowing action. He took God into his arms. About this baby, John said, all things were made through him. Nothing was made except but by him. He was the word made flesh. He was the logos. First Timothy 3.16 says, Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in human flesh. And Simeon took up God in his arms. That makes the hair in my next stand on it. As for timing, God intended Mary to meet Simeon that day to hear his prophetic words about God's program of redemption. He had a message for her from God. 
verses 34 and 35. Simeon blessed him and said to him, To Mary his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Earlier the, we read the father and mother marveled at what was said about Jesus, and rightly so. Simeon blessed her family and predicted Mary would suffer anguish as she witnessed how her son would be treated. Salvation, which was Jesus' task to procure, would be purchased at a heavy cost. And costly for Mary, too, who loved the son she bore, Simeon's prophecy introduces a note of sadness not sounded so clearly before. This is the first reference to Jesus' sufferings in this gospel. You know, we get our Christmas cards and we put lights up in Christmas trees. And I want to say the Christmas story is not all sweetness and light. His own people would not receive him. Israel's enemies would not be driven out immediately. Israel's consolation might be delayed for some time. And Messiah must first experience opposition and rejection. And Mary would be wounded by it all as if the word is used of a large heavy sword not a little dagger but a great heavy sword thrust into her soul now that's an allusion to the effect the passion and death of Jesus would have upon her she loved her son she was there at Calvary suffering with him and Simeon's words prepared her for what lay ahead Jesus would be a sign not heeded but slandered a sign that would be spoken against you know believing in Christmas is not the same as believing in Christ we sometimes forget this side of things and the purpose we must not forget that Simeon also mentions the work of a suffering Christ would reveal the inmost thoughts of men. Verse 35, the thoughts from many hearts would be revealed. Now there's something to ponder. According to the insight given to Simeon, we declare where we are spiritually by our attitude and valuation of Jesus Christ, whoever we are. No one is neutral about him. There might be people who, tonight who think that they're still sitting on the fence. God won't allow you to do that. Leon Morris says, when men see Christ suffer, their reaction to that shows on which side they stand by their estimate of the cross. How we respond to the knowledge of his sufferings reveals our hearts. That's what Simeon say. Our response to his person and passion determines 
our eternal destiny. It's a solemn thing to say. Jesus said, if you don't identify with me in my death, you are against me. He is either a rejected stone or he's the capstone. And what Calvary says to us is that uh, you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. Therefore glorify God. I am not my own. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. Have you done that? I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. Content to let the world go by, to know no gain nor loss. My sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross can you say that to the Jews the cross was an offense a scandal from which they recoiled in horror and hatred the Greeks saw it as utter foolishness weakness nonsense but a Christian whether Jew or Gentile glories in the cross I think Paul was saying something like this this morning Simeon predicted Jesus as a divider of men. So he has been, so is he still. He divides here tonight. I look around and I see a lot of people, and uh, I'd like to think you're all on the Lord's side, but that would be optimistic. We're not all on the Lord's side. Much as I'd like to think so. Many coldly reject him. Verse 34, some will accept him. They will rise. Some will reject him. They will fall. He's there for the falling and rising of men and women. Jesus Christ is appointed for the fall and rising of many. In other words, judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation are the consequences of his coming. Isaiah 8 verse 14, prophetic of Jesus, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. Christ is the appointed sign spoken against, hated by many, surrounded by enemies, persecutors, unbelievers. The very nations conspire together against the Lord and his anointed, Psalm 2. No nation or government in this world is overtly Christian. Think of North Korea, think of Iran, think of Iraq, think of the Congo, think of Zimbabwe. The nations are against him and rapidly our own nation is becoming anti-Christian. Christ divides the world and Christians divide the world as Christ did 2 Corinthians 2 verse 15 we are to God the aroma of Christ speaking of the church and true believers he delights in us because of Christ 
we are to God the aroma of Christ. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one we are the smell of death to death. And to the other the fragrance of life to life. The church is either an aromatic fragrance or it's an unpleasant stench. The aroma is the same, but it's how people receive it. The coming of Christ would provoke, this is what Simeon's saying, that hidden rebellion into open antagonism, which is exactly what happened. The cross does that. That exposing was and is necessary. We now know clearly what was in the hearts of men and women. Um, when given the opportunity, man crucified the Creator, the Lord of glory. There could be no consolation for Israel until that hidden rebellion against God had been brought into the open and faced up to. It had to be recognized and acknowledged. And that had to be followed by repentance followed by God's forgiveness. And you remember what happened on the day of Pentecost. The very people who shouted out, Crucify him! Crucify him! We will not have this man to reign over us. Peter stood up and he preached, You, by with wicked hands, took the Lord of glory and crucified him. And the Holy Spirit brought conviction to them. And they said, What must we do? That was a powerful gospel message and 3,000 people got converted. 3,000 Jews. What must be? Christ is the stone, you see. The means of falling, he's also the means of rising. He will be one of two things to you tonight. He'll be your savior or he'll be your judge. Not something between. You cannot sit on the fence. Jesus said, if you're not with me, if you're not with me, positively, you're against me. Um, and for some, Christ proclaims reconciliation. Enemies made friends. And for others, condemnation. So the gospel is a message of life, but it's also a message of death. It's good news only for those who believe tonight. Jesus Christ would become the Savior of many who despised Him, spoke against Him, blasphemed His name, shouted for His death, rejected Him, because many would repent and believe. And the word repent simply means to change your mind. The hearts of many would be changed. Saul of Tarsus was a wonderful example, wasn't he? Jesus' arch enemy who seemed to hate Jesus more than any other man on earth, more than any other Jew, certainly. Jesus came not to unite men, to but to divide men. Some would be for him, and some would be against him. I'm for him tonight, you might have guessed. Uh, Simeon is for him. He's on the Lord's side. Now, I've got to pull all this together in the next few minutes, and then we're finished. In, in my thoughts, I've contrasted Simeon with Herod. Imagine it was Herod who'd been timed to enter the temple that day. You know about Herod, don't you? 
and given the opportunity of taken, taking the tiny form of Jesus into his arms, how safe do you think he would have been? I know it's, it's an imaginary thing that couldn't have happened, but Jesus Christ was perfectly safe with Simeon. Safe as houses. He could be trusted to hold God securely and affectionately in his arms, taking hold of God with the greatest delight and tenderness and humility and unspeakable joy, embracing the Savior, God's salvation. Lord, let us now thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation according to thy word. He had peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that truth remains. And I don't say this glibly, but it will be the greatest moment in your life when you personally take Christ up in love while you have the opportunity. Salvation must be known before we die because there's no salvation after we die. Seeing and embracing Christ in faith is essential if that greatest of all human fears that we're speaking of, the fear of death, is to be resolved. Thoughts of many are revealed at Calvary, yours and mine included, as we come to the Lord's table in a few minutes. What are your deepest thoughts about Calvary? The departure of each Christian can be as positive as Simeon's. We can die having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. One-time enemy, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, saw his own departure from the world as a blessing. And he said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. What shall I choose? I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. For Paul's eyes had also seen God's salvation while traveling on the road to Damascus. If our life, like Simeon's, is one of waiting and looking for the Lord, so it will be for us. Even now, unto those who eagerly await his coming, the book of Hebrews says, shall he appear a second time, not to deal with sin as he did the first time, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. On that day, our eyes will literally see our salvation. And such daily awareness will have an effect on our lifestyle, our ambitions, determining the sort of people we will be. When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Do we owe Christ anything? Some of you will recognize the name Maximilian Kolbe, a Polish Catholic priest imprisoned in the Nazi death camp of Auschwitz. Occasionally someone would escape from Auschwitz and one July night in 1941 a prisoner did escape from uh, Maximilian Kolbe's barracks. The inhuman commandant was furious 
and decided that 10 would die in the starvation bunker, block 13. 10 would die for the one escapee. They'd be deprived of food and water until they died. Just a slow, lingering, tortuous death. They were lined up and the choice was made, but Maximilian Kolbe was not chosen. So he approached the commandant to make a request. I would like to die for one of the men that you've chosen. Which one? The one who was weeping there and heartbroken because he was being taken from his family and his family would have no one to care for them. For that man, I want to die. And it was agreed. And he was put in the starvation bunker. Seven of the folks died within three weeks. Three weeks, Maximilian Kolbe was still alive. So they brought him out and gave him an injection of carbolic acid, which is the sort of thing Nazis did. He held his arm out to receive the injection. He died. The name of the man for whom he was a substitute was Francis Czech Gatchovnicek. My Polish is terrible, but... That was his name, and he survived Auschwitz. But after achieving his freedom, he never stopped telling the story about the man who died for him. He, he, he went all over the world, as well as telling his children, his grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren. Uh, they all were familiar with the name Maximilian Colby. They were household words. He went to the USA in 1994 and told the story there to America. His gratitude never wavered. His thankfulness and joy flowed from him. He never forgot the debt he owed, not for one day of the rest of his life. And he promised that as long as he lived, he would tell the people, tell people about the man who died in his place. This is what he did for me. Uh, Mr. Gajovnicek died just in 1995 at the age of 95. You can see where I'm going in this true story as I conclude. I'm going to another true story. In heaven, the Son of God said to his Father regarding people condemned, I want to die for that man. I want to die for that woman. People for whom there was no escape. I want to die for Tom Lawson. I want to die for Saul of Tarsus. And in gratitude, the Apostle Paul uttered these words. He loved me and gave himself for me. He paid a debt he didn't owe, a debt he couldn't pay. Jesus' desire before the Father was agreed to in heaven. And he made the sacrifice. He died. His sacrifice was accepted. He died that I might live. No wonder this feast is called the Eucharist, which means to give thanks. And we say, thank you, Lord. It's the cup of thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me 
Thy great salvation so rich and free. Have you said thank you? We've got an opportunity to do that in a moment. Let's pray.